Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome to Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. I'm your host, along with our co-host, Ronnie Nathan, and we're co-produced by my pal, Tristan Drew. By the way, if you like the show, please leave us a review, hopefully five stars and, you know, some comments on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us in the rankings. And follow us, comment, like, share on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And without further ado, it is a real honor to introduce today's guest, Dr. Joanna Hartelius, Associate Professor at UT Austin's Moody College of Communication. Joanna is also an award-winning author, most recently of The Gifting Logos, Expertise in the Digital Commons, which is really, I've been ensconced in it and keeping my dictionary close and learning all kinds of new stuff. But you can also hear her on a couple pretty freaking awesome podcasts, if I do say so myself. Uh, Crackers and Grape Juice, is one of them, and you're not accepted, which <laughs> I got to, Dad, you want to tell the story about you're not accepted? <laughs> yeah, so um, the team that produces a series of different podcasts uh, call themselves Crackers and Grape Juice. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the big uh, umbrella term. Uh, and it's Taylor Mertens, uh, Tier Hardy, Jason Michelli, uh, all of whom are pastors in the United Methodist Church. Okay. And then me. Um, who is really not. Um, And so we have a series of programs. Uh, One of them is You Are Not Accepted. Another one that we started out with was called Hermeneutics. Okay. Uh, That was kind of like my- uh, I went to high school with him. (laughs) Hermeneutics? Yeah. (laughs) He sat next to me in in math. Yeah. yeah. That must have been quite quite the conversation then. (laughs) Well, You're you're Not Accepted presented a little bit of a pickle for us uh, as we were prepping for this interview. I kept on sending my dad a link and my dad said, yeah, but I just got, <laughs> I got a text that said oh, you're not accepted. That's kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it comes out of a, uh, like a Harawasian attempt to situate human imperfection at the center of a conversation rather than to continue kind of the emphasis on everybody's fine. Everything is good. You're fine the way you are. You're great. You're perfect. God yeah. loves you just the way you are. And rather be like, no, actually you, you have quite a bit of a need for salvation. Okay. So, so, so Corey, yeah. why don't you tell us why Joanne is on this podcast? What is it about Joanne that Joanna. motivate Joanna. Joanna? Yeah. That, that, justifies her being on our podcast. Well, just going out to zillions of people. Well, first of all, I came across the podcast because I was doing research for my friend, Amy Laura Hall, Dr. Amy Laura Hall from Duke Divinity. Um, And then I started listening to more of the podcasts and then I got your book and, you know, (laughs) bottom line is you're pretty badass. That's, (laughs) that's, that's why you're on the podcast. The more, the deeper I dug and the more I read and the more I listened, I was like, ah, man, I, I got to reach out. And, uh, you know, wh- whether we're accepted or not, I was, I was glad that you accepted her invitation to come on. <laughs> is that, is that uh, a but, good enough answer to your question, Pop? Um, actually, I was looking for the substance of Johanna's work that we were going to be talking about. Oh yeah. There's that too. <laughs> um, so I guess, let's see, I was going to ask you about your background and stuff like that, but um, let's just, I'll take your cue, Pops. Let's dive right in. I, I've heard you, first of all, I'm a big Stanley fan as well. So just the subject matter really caught, caught my attention. Um, I was curious about someone with your training and background. Um, what? And what? Training and background and what? Yeah. Um, could you tell us a little bit, you know, <laughs> Dad, you're throwing me off here, man. That's a father's job. 
Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, that's why I go to therapy. Uh, would you like to tell us what your specialty is? Sure. So um, I am a rhetorical critic and theorist, which means that I study how people use language to negotiate cultural and political power, some of whom have a lot of power sanctioned by various institutions like the academy or the church or political, uh, you know, state apparatuses. Um, and some of whom really don't and uh, thus have to leverage other forms of persuasion to enter the public sphere. Right. And what, what, what's, what's your religious background? Um, well, actually, so I grew up in Sweden. Um, I'm a Swedish citizen. Um, I have lived in the United States now for more than half of my life. Um, so I grew up Lutheran because until the year 2000, um, the Lutheran church was the state church in Sweden. And um, so I was confirmed and baptized in the Lutheran church. And then when I came to the United States, um, I, this is how I met uh, Jason Michelli at, at a, a Methodist summer camp in Virginia where I was a counselor. And then um, I, I, I eventually found the Episcopalian church or the, the Episcopal church, I should say that, um, and, and found, that, that that was the right home for me. What was it about the Episcopal Church? Was it the theology or some of the scholars that you came across there? Both. Um, I think that the, the, the high liturgy and, and kind of the, the ritualistic nature of the Episcopal Church uh, was right for me. Um, yeah. How does that inform your work? How does it inform? Can you, be, can you tell me more specifically what you mean by that? Well, I'm... I'm an observant Jew, you know, yarmulke wearing, orthodox observant Jew, and it informs everything I do in my life, mm -hmm. from the food I eat to the way I treat people to how I make decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious about how someone who's an academic who specializes in, I guess, linguistics, is that? Rhetoric. Um, how being a Christian would inform your work. Well, okay, yeah. I think that the, um, it increasingly has entered what I write about, but for, for a long time, I think it's more fundamental in terms of how I comport myself in the world and how I, um, how I think of teaching, for example, or, or what I think of the purpose of scholarship being. Um, less so than be it, it, it being a, an explicit topic in my research. But recently, um, I started writing about uh, Fleming Rutledge, right? one of the first women to be ordained to the Episcopal Church, um, and her sermons, which is an interesting way for me to come back around to American public address, really, which is a central topic in, in research on, on rhetoric. So it's, it's gradually become something that I write more about, but I think it's always been part of what drives my interest in um, how do people talk about what they know and their experience of being human and living in the world. And what is that, how does, how does that create different kinds of um, discursive artifacts in the world? I've noticed that in some of your more public work that you're, you're almost caught between two worlds. Um, and, and this isn't the, the best representation uh, certainly the comments section of, of the Houston Chronicle, for example. Yeah. But, but I think it would take some of the um, less rhetorically gifted commenters, <laughs> to put it charitably, um, off guard if they knew that by most measures, you have a pretty conservative theology. Don't, yeah. don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. I always think that that's an, an interesting aspect of this. And it, it's, it's funny how that surprises both liberals and conservatives Yeah, <laughs> that, um, that the, the more, the more conservative or the more right leaning aspects of my in-lawed family, for instance, uh, they think of me, of course, as the crazy liberal who, yeah. who's the, the, the academic. Right. And then it turns out that I go to church all the time and they're like, right. what that doesn't compute. Um, Likewise, the people who said um, some not so nice things about me um, following an op-ed piece, uh, they don't, I mean, for one, they don't know anything about me. Right. So it's, it's hard to get worked up about that kind of vitriol if it's completely, you know, shot in the dark. 
Um, but what's what's interesting about it is that aspect of um, not knowing where where an ethic is grounded, yeah. which in my case is like you say, fairly uh, conservatively Christian. Yeah, and and not only that, to to answer one of your first questions, Dad, one of the reasons that Joanna's work appealed to me is because, uh, like in your 2015, uh, the the volume that you edited, the rhetorics of U.S. immigration. Mm-hmm. When you when I hear your theology on the podcasts, your positions on immigration are pretty well scripturally grounded, don't you think? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite <laughs> my favorite scholar to be thinking about immigration through is probably Emmanuel Levinas, speaking of a Jewish perspective in the world. OK, um, that that I am I'm. I'm committed to a you know humanitarian politic of border, you know, management. But at the same time, what really interests me as a scholar is like how can we understand borders as these uh, liminal spaces of encounters with the other? And in those more theoretical considerations, we can get into. Um, a range of Judeo-Christian wonderings and and. And, and premises about what what how, how ought we to relate each ourselves to one another? Yeah, yeah. So I, no, I, I didn't. Spe- go can ahead. Can you Bob. be specific about? You know, you be specific about how your Christian theology informs your attitude about the Trump immigration policy. Oh, that there was that um, op-ed in was it the Hill in July? Yeah. Well, that that I wrote that one because um, I wanted to make an argument that would be uh, compelling regardless of your humanitarian ethics, whatever religious perspective might be informing it. Oh, right. That that was a more pragmatic. uh, Yeah. The argument there is this is stupid. Um, (laughs) This is stupid because you may or may not think that deporting people at a moment's notice is evil. I think it is, but it doesn't really matter what I think if if you're coming from the point of view of self-interest. And if you are, this is the argument I'm making that op-ed, if you are, then this is such bad politics. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I want to jump in here because that ties together a few different things. My dad is digging down to the connection between your theology or your faith and your vocational work, mm-hmm. um, your writing, uh, in, and but I, I see that there's something else at work here. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is expertise, and part of your work, even going back to like your 2012 book, the the rhetoric is it? Am I saying it right? The rhetoric of expertise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is is that. It's not merely about expertise in terms of knowledge and having expertise, but also about rhetoric or persuasion, as mm-hmm. you might might also say. Um, so tying it all together, it seems that you your positions to me as as I examine them and have heard you speak out about uh, speak about your theology are very well grounded in uh, sound theology in scripture. but your public argument is also, thoughtful in terms of your rhetoric, in terms of how you're persuading the public or whoever you're engaging. Is that, yeah. is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, a, a generous reading. Um, I hope so. Um, my work on expertise has always been about challenging the assumption that experts are defined by, or expertise is defined by a, a, a knowledge substance that is uh, that exceeds the average person. That mm. that expertise is this um, negotiated status or or kind of um, ontological positioning where what you know orients you in relation to other people. And so, for if 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 you have academic expertise, for example, it's sort of it's 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 um, guaranteed like <laughs> like a like a like a banking system almost right that the, the um, not to turn Paulo Freire's uh, concept on its head, but the um, 
the, the argument I make in that first book, which was based on my dissertation, is that we have to see expertise as happening in the context of um, contestation. That if you are, if you're a medical expert, then the, the patients that you treat can very well construct a position in, in dialogue with you to say, you don't really know what it is to be sick. Like that is a whole different sort of expertise and that's, um, and, and it needs to be taken as seriously. And so that's, that's been a theme in my, my scholarship. Like how, um, how is what you know um, a part of a, a dialogue? So I have a few questions about, about that. Do you yeah. feel that the idea of expertise has either been hijacked or um, like by anti-intellectualism, for example, or by frauds who aren't really experts? Yes to yes to all of that. So <laughs> um, I think that the word expert has been hijacked always by people who want it to mean what will benefit them. And so, um, yes, there is a really long and deep tradition in the United States of anti-intellectualism where to be expert is to be potentially a threat to the everyman or my sort of my, remember that stupid discussion about oversized soda, I think, and sort of no. people's right to make bad decisions. No, I just thought it, it all, anti-intellectualism just started with Sarah Palin. That's all. <laughs> yeah. The sort of like, like you may be, you may be eloquent and you may be erudite, but really what counts is being plain spoken. Yeah. And uh, like that. So that's there and its connections to kind of populism um, from, you know, from the second half of the 19th century. Um, but I think that the the concept gets hijacked then like over again to um, to to exclude the, the voices of um, of a of a lower socioeconomic class or or, or a kind of racial or ethnic other that that precludes other forms of knowing and so that i think that's a problematic too where if we if we hunker down on oh expert needs to mean superior knowledge and some truths are truer than others fine that's that's important but i think that 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 position too gets used to exclude marginalized voices in mm. a really bad way so there's a balance there that was my, one of my other questions is is um, is there a danger in relying too heavily on elites, uh, you know, if you want to use a pejorative as it's used now? Yeah, I mean, yes, yes, of course. I, I, um, there's a need to have healthy skepticism toward the concept of epistemic privilege. So if you if if the word knowledge means certain kinds of things, like only some experiences count as knowledge, or only some um, bodies of data count as knowledge, then mm. then we it, it's not a historical accident that those exclude so many. Right, right. And and I, I just got done this fall teaching a graduate seminar on teaching. Um, it's sort of our 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 seminar where we where we teach new graduate students how to become teachers. Yeah. Um, and something we talked about a lot is what are the what are the subjectivities, identities, experiences that kind of have no place in academic spaces? And why is that? And how um, how the students who fit that description, how did they survive in the academy or why do they leave? And can you give and, a specific example, a concrete example? Um, so because I'm in Texas, um, we have a large population of uh, Latinx or uh, Hispanic students, and they may be from border regions and they come to, you know, the capital of Texas to a really liberal, for the most part, um, campus of tens of thousands of people. And very quickly, they discover that what they come from or kind of like their home space is, is very foreign and they're an, a foreign in a way that makes them feel um, like they don't belong, like, like what they know about life and the world is completely invalid. They have a really hard time translating the truths that they come from into active participation in the classroom and it makes them feel, uh, you know, 
Yeah, excluded and um, like unintelligible, like like the 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 white academy doesn't see them, that they make no sense. Yeah. Okay. You know, what interests me, and that's very current, is this whole issue of mask wearing during a pandemic. Mm. Mm-hmm. The quote experts all say, wear your damn masks. And every single day I've confronted with friends who present all this information that's supposed to prove to me that mask wearing is a waste of time. Um, and you have all kinds of layers. You know, there's the political layer, there's, um, you know, the convenience layer, there's all kinds of stuff going on here. When the bottom line is, how do we know what the truth is? Mm-hmm. How do we know and how do we convince people to behave in a responsible way? And what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really, I wonder if there's, it's what you said about how do we know what the truth is? This is a good entrance point for your previous mm. question about informing my, uh, my, my faith informing what I do. I think the truth, particularly for, for, for devout Christians, um, is not so much a, um, a statement about an empirical reality so much as it was, you know, an is an incarnate God. Um, but, but if we sep- if we sort of <laughs> bracket that out for the conversation of mask wearing, <laughs> then, then what we have is, well, people who study contagion, um, who have produced research in the world of epidemiology, they say masks contain spread. And that is a good enough reason to wear one. Um, not because, you know, the truth is masks, but because it empirically makes fewer people sick. Right. And, uh, then, so, and, then, and, then, and then the typical comeback is, what about my liberty? Yeah. Aren't you responsible for your own health? And why do I have to be uh, yeah. constrained? Yeah. And the ironic thing is most of the people that I interact with who rebel against mask wearing are devout Christians, mm. evangelical Christians. Yeah. So they're pro-life when it comes to abortion and pro-choice when it comes to mask wearing. Yeah. Which I find enormously funny as a Jew who doesn't have this issue to deal with whatsoever. You know, I put on my mask because the probability is I'm helping people. Yeah. Downside is if I don't, you know, the worst thing can happen is that wearing a mask has no effect whatsoever. So why shouldn't I wear it? Yeah. That and one thing to say is um, it usually works to make an argument that's going to resonate with the person that you're talking to. So if, if I'm talking, if I'm trying to convince an evangelical Christian from, from whatever, um, from wherever, then I would have to ask myself, what's going to make this person move? What's going to move the needle for this guy or Uh, gal? And I mean, if once you start pulling at that thread, you're kind of in the train of do the means justify the ends or do the ends justify the means? So can I would I say whatever I had to to get this person to wear a mask? I can say, like, well, God wants you to wear a mask, not because I believe that necessarily, but because that person might, you know. God wants you to look out for other people. Okay, so that's where the rhetoric rhetorics and, and, excuse me, rhetoric and persuasion comes into play. I wanted to dig down a little bit on the idea of truth. I forget if it was crackers and grape juice or you're not accepted, but I heard you say, um, oh gosh, you were talking about whether truth or, let me just ask you straight out. Do you think there are truths that are exclusive? Um, no. Because um, Christ is inclusive. Okay. Um, do I think that there are absolute truths? Yes, but only one. Okay. Um, do I think 
that that cultural relativism is uh, a reality? Yes. So like all of these things are true at the same time. Um, do I think that that Christians should be imposing truth on others? No. Okay. So, yeah, that, that, that was kind of my next question is if, if Christianity. So you're a political liberal and a religious conservative. Yes, sir. Mm, that's interesting. That's yeah, too that, bad because I'm in, the, I'm in the same category. I'm not going to have a very hot conversation on the podcast as a result. <laughs> we'll just agree with each other. No, I remember what the conversation was about uh, I, um, on, on your podcast. If Christianity doesn't offer exclusive truths, can it still be true? And it was in the context of the flood stories, the creation stories, the resurrections, yeah. et cetera. Right. Well, and stories can be can be true without being uh, literal reports on a historical event. So the I I um I don't know how deep you've been digging in my publications, but I <laughs> co-authored this piece about post-truth and Nietzsche's Zarathustra. Oh, yeah. and uh, and we one of the little pieces in that text is is Superman real? Because that was a conversation I had with my then, I think, five-year-old son. <laughs> he must be and, a preco precocious child. <laughs> yeah. And so I said, well, yeah, Superman is real because the story is real. It really motivates people to, to read comic books and watch the movies and, and believe in someone who can fly with a cape and what have you. Um, but, but the story, so the story is real, even if it's not accurate, I guess. Mm. Right, right, right. My father and I have been having this now 20 year long conversation about, uh, is the Bible literally true? And I just don't think that's a sufficient question because yeah. like, which part, you know, what are you talking about? It's um, a misleading question. Yeah. I think it leads to, I think, I mean, I don't have a background in theological training. I really don't. But I think that asking is it literally true sets you up for a conversation that's different than the one maybe you're trying to have. Yeah. Um, which is sort of like, what is it for? And um, how might we enter it um, corporeally um, in the context of, of others? Right, right. There, you know, there are so many levels to this conversation. I think for a long time, I've had this um, fundamental belief that one of the problems that we have is that we have one word, true or truth, mm -hmm. that really describes about 150 other things that are very different than each other. Yeah. Um, on a practical level, just since we have a father and son on this podcast, uh, Corey and I remember very key events in his life factually much differently. That's because you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you're now, old. Your I'll, memory fails you. It's okay, Dad. Just admit it. The first step is is admitting it. <laughs> uh, Corey, go to bed without supper and be quiet for a second. Your father is talking. Okay. Sorry, Dad. Um, so we remember these key events in his childhood or early adulthood very, very differently factually, and those memories of different. Um, uh, uh, versions of something that happened have been rattling around in our brains and our minds, our hearts for 30 years now. I mean, for me, the truth is how I remember the truth. My memory is more real than whatever it was that really happened because that's what shaped my life and my relationship with Corey. And the same is true from his end. So now what is the truth? Well, it seems true? like you're driving, sorry to cut you off, but it seems like you're driving a little bit closer to where Joanna's expertise is, which is how do we know things? Um, it, it, am, am I getting your your area of expertise correct? Like epistemology? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and it's funny what got me interested initially in that. Um, I don't know if you're going to believe this, but um, when I started thinking about a dissertation, which was around 2006, maybe, um, I and a, a mentor of mine were analyzing the antics of Jon Stewart and The Daily Show. Oh, that's great. And 
I noticed how many people in the public eye were kind of asking him, well, what do you think? Or why aren't you serving your function in, in political media? And his answer was always like, I follow two sock puppets making fart jokes. What are you asking that's me? That's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. And yet, so he had this, and that's also what got me interested in, in, um, in, in comedy as a, a genre. Like what does it do for the humorist? Yeah. But he was able to, to, to play effectively someone with some political and mediated expertise, right? He was a, a, a commentator at a really critical time. But at the same time, as soon as somebody, and somebody called him on it, he would say, I'm a comedian. What do you want from me? <laughs> that, that for me led to questions about what is political expertise? Yeah, yeah. Changing the subject a little bit here, I, I noticed that when you there are certain philosophers that you quote. It might either just be um, what you're quoting, um, but it might actually be their worldview, but like Foucault or Derrida or going back to Nietzsche. Um, they, <laughs> if all I take is the quotes that, that, um, that, that's in your work, I might come to the conclusion that those specific philosophers have a really dark view of humanity and the, and the universe. Is yeah. that is that accurate of their worldview or is that just what you're quoting of them? That's, you're not the first person to ask me that, um, which is interesting. Uh, I don't know. S smarter people than me have, have, have wondered about that. I think if you, if you read a, a sufficient, um, uh, if you read a large amount of Nietzsche, some people come away right, saying and thinking that this is, the most uh, misanthropic, darkest, angriest. Um, and with him, and then similarly sort of with Martin Heidegger, like if you don't, if, if, if you don't have any hope at all, you wouldn't be writing this much. Like it's very, um, it's sort of like writing against, what is it, these fragments I've shored against my ruin? That's um, Faulkner, I think maybe. But it's just the, if, if you really don't have any hope, that there, that that good things can happen, then you wouldn't be trying so hard. Yeah, but do they know they have hope? I don't know. They didn't. They seem to maybe not know that. And what is the truth? Is the truth is that they do have hope and they don't have hope. Probably I both. Probably yeah. both. In which case, if two things can exist at the same time that are in contradiction with each other, that also changes the way you look at truth. Mm -hmm. Truth can you know, contradicts itself. Uh, yeah. Jews, Jews are especially talented at holding two truths that are at odds <laughs> in oh, the same. Only, only two? <laughs> exactly. Two, two, two Jews, about seven opinions. <laughs> well, and that's, that's, an, that's an incredibly important thing. The, the, Ronin, like you were saying, if, if you're asking from a Christian perspective, what is truth? Uh, then, then the answer can be either really short or really long. Mm. But if we're opening up a conversation like we're doing now, then I think you're right that that grappling with multiplicity is one of the things that the Western mind really resists. Like, no, it can't be that so many things are complicating my thoughts. We we almost have like a juvenile reaction to that. Like, it's no, it's got to be one way, and ideally my way. And yet yeah. your whole religion is based on an, an, an incomprehensible uh, contradiction of the Trinity. Yes. I, 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 you know, to a Jew looking at the Trinity, it, it, it's almost, you say, why do the Christians have to get into that problem? I mean, you know, a Christian professor of mine once said something that was very, um, revealing to me as a Jew. He said, anybody who says they understand the Trinity doesn't know what they're talking about. Yeah. Which means your whole religion is based on something that no one can understand. Yeah. Or fully understand. Yeah. It's, it's that, yeah, that part kind of sucks. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I say that because I feel like I spend a lot of time or less so now than a couple of years ago in my pursuit but I, um, I just feel like I spent a lot of time trying to really get it uh, until I gave that up to some degree. 
We'll become Jewish. It's not a problem. (laughs) (laughs) So one thing, one, one, I guess, puzzle piece or key that helped me let it go a little was this notion of a, a love, a love, a loving colloquy that keeps the, the pieces of the Trinity together. And that to be human is to be sort of like sucked into it. Um, and the, that either you can use a metaphor of, of being sucked like vacuum or sucked like, like being, being part of the, the, the light and energy of that, that colloquy. That, that kind of brings me to a question that I've had on my mind uh, since I heard one of your podcasts. It was um, probably the one that I, where I wasn't accepted. Uh, <laughs> but you, you made a comment. Uh, was it about pr- all, the prayer, Dad? Yeah, yeah. As an Orthodox Jew, I spend about two hours a day in prayer. Prayer structures my whole day. Yeah. I have morning prayers, uh, wake up prayers, afternoon prayers, evening prayers, go to sleep prayers. I spend a lot of time in prayer every single day, structures my day. Um, and you said, and I, I grapple with when you pray the same liturgy three times a day, and I've been doing it now for 15 years, you begin to memorize it. Mm-hmm. And you find yourself like balancing your checkbook while you're praying in your head, <laughs> you know, uh, thinking of comebacks for people you're arguing with on Facebook <laughs> while I'm praying. Yeah. You know? And um, I've had meetings with rabbis asking them, why do I go through that? Why do I invest this much of my life? Mm-hmm. What's the point? Um, and you said something really that, that caught my attention. You said, Prayer is a moment of grace. Could you talk a little bit about that, what that means? Let me just inject this one before you, because to contrast that, the one that really caught my attention was, and it was more of a question, um, but I am not praying that you're not there, but F you. (laughs) You know, that's part of the same podcast. Yeah, that's a bold prayer. Well, okay. So the, the, the first part first, I kind of, I, when I hear you describing the, the ritual prayer that, that structures the day, um, it almost makes me feel, it makes me feel a combination of admiration and envy. Cause I'm like, that sounds great. <laughs> um, it sounds great because not because it, um, I don't know, from my perspective, not because it makes one sort of um, self gratified, but because it's sort of following what you are supposed to do as a, as a Jew, as a person. And, um, and so the part where you're thinking about comebacks on Facebook at the same time, I don't, I don't think that that's a bad thing or a problem. It just means you're human. Yeah. Um, and so the moments of grace, they're given to you in those uh, rituals, not because your specialness has like merited them again, from my point of view, but because they're, they're given like you, you're doing the ritual, you're saying the prayers and there's, there's the gift. There's just, it comes to you. The answer that one rabbi gave me that was most helpful, um, that enriched my prayer experience. He said, the only thing that you're really doing when you pray is connecting with God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that connection can take a lot of forms. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes there's a spontaneous aha moment that you didn't expect. Um, sometimes it's like a meditation experience. And sometimes you're only getting in touch with your own better angels, the peace of the div- divine that's within my own soul. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also does something else. It reminds me every day that I'm a religious person and I have a responsibility to be uh, consistent with a certain moral outlook on life. Yeah. Even if it's uncomfortable sometimes. Yeah. And I I heard, I don't know who said this originally, but that that the shortest and yet fully sufficient prayer is just amen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or um, what was the one... uh... God help me. Peter was sinking. Just a really mm-hmm. short prayer. <laughs> yeah. Or like, yeah, help, 
help is a good one too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe please help. <laughs> what What about that other, that other? Again, that other I don't part? know if it was necessarily a prayer, but um, a question like, can, like, can we pray that prayer? Like, yeah. So this came out of me thinking about like what would make me, what would make me not believe anymore, or something along those lines. What would make me not want to worship? Yeah. Um, you know, and as a parent, the most immediate go-to is sort of like the loss of, of that mm. relationship, right. In some way. Um, so, but, but I, when I consider that prospect, it doesn't make me think that I would stop believing. It makes me think that I would be so angry, right. That, that my prayers would be prayers of, um, rage, yeah. which is which is weird and very scary to be thinking about because yeah. it sounds like it's different than worship and gratitude and praise. Uh, but, but uh, that's where my mind goes. I'm, I feel like we, it's good to talk about those things because it's not like that's historically unique. Like people have been praying prayers of rage for a long time. Right. Right. The, where my head goes, and I'll be honest, I I've prayed maybe not that exact prayer, but something close to it. And it usually has to do with, things with things that don't look just, you know, mm -hmm. like, and gosh, I mean, uh, even on the political scene, I, I could, I could empathize with someone praying a prayer like that because, you know, coincidentally, uh, I read through the Bible. I just kind of start at Genesis, go through revelation and start over again. I happen to be in Job right now. Mm, um, there you go. Yeah. It's just uh, totally coincidental, <laughs> but I could, I could see somebody praying that prayer because those who are so obviously unrighteous are are rewarded so greatly. You know, you you couldn't pick a character that if you look at the virtues and um, I don't know how you describe it, but the anti virtues mm -hmm. um, in, in the Bible, there's not. There, I couldn't imagine a character so perfectly suited to the anti virtues, and yet um, seems to be rewarded again and again and again. I think it um, so, depends on how you define the word rewarded. Yeah, I mean, he did lose the election, but <laughs> but he's also raised one hundred and seventy million dollars off of the loss of the election. So, you yeah, know, but I mean, like, I mean, not, not you know, not 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 to be um, um, cavalier about it, but I would posit that I'm much happier uh, and at peace with myself and feel justified in the world without $175 million. In <laughs> well, fact, very... $175 million might add to the tension and conflict in my life. That's yeah. a very Zen way to look at it. <laughs> well, just... I've had that, I had that conversation with my husband a couple of days ago where he was asking me and another person, all right, so if you could live 50 years um, with absolute impunity, like you had all the money in the world, you could do anything, anything, uh, and then you knew that after 50, after that time was over, you would go to jail or whatever, right? Would you do it? And I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Faust did. What? <laughs> Faust you say that? did. Oh, no. I mean, a lot of folks have kind of joked half jokingly about uh, his Trump superpower is his shamelessness. Like he doesn't have a conscience. Yeah. I, I gosh, I. I almost envy that. Not really, but I sort of do. <laughs> like, um, man, what, what's it like not to have a conscience? But uh, yeah. Anyway, I didn't mean to go there too too much. Oh yeah. I know we have to wrap up, so I I I um I want to make sure that I I ask you about a couple things. One is um, your your latest book, the Gifting Logos: Expertise in the Digital Digital Commons. So. I'm not all the way through it yet, but just for our audience's purposes, the digital commons, is it just as it sounds everywhere we gather digitally on the internet, social media, et cetera, or are you defining it differently? So the in the book, I draw on literatures about both the natural commons and the history of the cultural commons to try to con construct something like the digital commons that doesn't just mean the World Wide Web or the internet or these initiatives by places like MIT, where they start putting out all their stuff for free. Right. Um, and so it's it's an attempt on my, on my part to talk about resources and people and kind of like the networks wherein those are coordinated. Uh, so it's, it is diffuse, but it, it 
you know, if you're looking at the natural commons in history, it's stuff like air and water and, and the things that sustain but can't be limited off really very easily. Right. Um, like Lawrence Lessig is one of the, the public intellectuals and, and legal figures that's written prominently about the idea of cultural commons and, and what happens to them in a digital world. Um, and so that's, I'm, I'm piggybacking on that to write about what is, what does it mean to know things and to make stuff in the digital commons and who does it belong to and to what sorts of knowledge is it traceable? Right. Right. Yeah. I like it. I appreciated how you built the foundation for us first, you know, going back to, I think you used um, uh, like a agrarian or feudal culture um, in, in mm -hmm. Europe uh, to define commons, for example, um, and, and how there were common resources that were um, parsed out and then built upon that for us to understand the commons in a digital world. So yeah. that was that was very helpful. Um, and then the gifting logos. So uh, if my aunt Tilly is listening, <laughs> we'll see her for for Hanukkah or or Christmas or what have you. How, how would you define the the gifting logo so that my aunt Tilly can can grasp the concept? I would say it's what people say when they try to account for their knowledge in the terms of a gift. So for example, when, um, when artists or even intellectuals talk about how they, their, their, their artworks or their books or whatnot are sort of gifts to the audience or gifts to people or gifts to the community. Um, and that, you know, we talk about gifting as that, that person is really gifted for yeah. example, right? What is it? What what are the meanings of gift ideas in in the world of knowing and making? Right, right. I don't know if that's very Antilly friendly, but <laughs> well. Um, so, for instance, I'll give you an example. Right, one of the chapters is about um, the Creative Commons license suite, right? right where right. Um, they created the system where instead of copyright, you can make your thing, whatever it is, music or a picture or a software podcast. code, <laughs> a podcast, right? You can license it to the public, right? Or through the comments with, with different combinations like attribution to the author or uh, repurpose or, or there are different options. Everything about that initiative that the Creative Commons licenses is filled with the idea of gifting. Everything they put out, everything in their um, state of the commons, you know, annual report, their website is full of it. And it talks about how if you if you license your thing with our licenses, you're giving to the world your your knowledge, your expertise, what have you. And so um, my attempt there was to make sense of that. Like, what is the relationship between expertise and gifting? Yeah. Yeah. Um, a couple more questions. My dad might have one and, and uh, we can wrap it up. But um, who are some of your intellectual heroes? Uh, like people I know or people I read from Both. a long time ago. <laughs> Either one. Either one. Um Okay. Well, I guess I would say my, my intellectual heroes uh, on my bookshelf are Plato, Aristotle, Heidegger, Nietzsche, and Levinas. Mm. I'm surprised he didn't say Hauerwas. I mean, he's part of my new gig. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Hauerwas. I think that he, he, his, his, writings are very hardworking as yeah. he, as does he, he come across, right? He, um, it's sort of a lifetime spent working within a certain territory. Um, it's so that, that to me is really moving. Um, but if I, but if I'm in that space, then I might say David Bentley Hart or Will Willimon too, in oh. terms of like the eloquence of theological writing. So I haven't read, I, I'm ashamed to say it, but I haven't read Willimon. Any um, any of his works that you'd recommend as an intro? Yeah, he has. Um, so um, Willimon just came out with a very short, very accessible book called Preacher's Dare. Uh, I reviewed it for Christian Century. Okay. 
Uh, it's good, it's easy to read, and it's short, and it's very smart. Um, I almost like his other one better, which is called Conversations with Bart. That's his, a condensation of his reading of Karl Bart and Ooh. the emphasis on preaching. So should we read that before we read any of Bart as a sort of an intro to Karl yeah. Bart? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I um, mean, I wouldn't say that I like kick back with some Karl Bart at the end of the day. Yeah. Although Jason does. Oh man. It's a, a lot <laughs> to chew on. Um, and what are you working on now or what, what uh, do you have coming up that we can look out for? Uh, well, um, what do we have coming forward? Uh, I just published an essay that I'm pretty proud of in the Quarterly Journal of Speech um, that is on the Wayback Machine. The Wayback Machine. I love it. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the notion of a web archive and what is what kind of expertise is in a web archive. Okay. All right. And that's it. The journal that. is? The Quarterly Journal of Speech. Terrific. I'll have to look that up. Um, <laughs> Dad, did you have any follow, any uh, last minute questions? No. <laughs> Terrific. All right. Last one. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. No. Hold on. Don't get ahead of I, yourself there. No, no. I'm going to fight with Old you. Old man. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> last question. Did you have any questions for me or, or Ronnie? Well, not, not with, not with so little time left, but I really, I, I am, um, I'm flattered that you would have me as your guest. I, I appreciate that very much. And, um, obviously you've, you've really read more of my stuff than probably anyone at this point. So <laughs> but thank you for, for your, um, generosity. Well, it's been great getting to know you a little bit and I appreciate you contributing to our little project here talking politics and religion without killing each other although that's the jury's still out on whether that's possible with me and my dad <laughs> i think the jury's yeah. out on a lot of people <laughs> well i mean you know like an, an orthodox jew whose son converted to christianity um you know it's kind of like if not unique at least unusual a little unusual yeah <laughs> and we well, still love each other yeah yeah well, I think we're coming in right onto the uh, the wire here, Joanna. So I really, really appreciate your time. And I hope this isn't the last time we hang out. I hope so, too. I'd, I'd love to chat with both of you again. That'd be great. That'd be great. Great, great meeting you, Joanna. Good meeting you, too. Take Bye. care. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.